0: Scripture reading this morning is found in uh, Matthew thirteen thirty-five. Matthew thirteen thirty-five. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet, "I will open my mouth in parables; I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world." Elder Elder Kaler has our sermon this morning. I've been doing a series for almost all of this year about the good news. The reason why I'm doing that is because I think good news is good news and needs to be shared, right? But I want to make sure that when we talk about our beliefs, that they are really good news. Because sometimes we talk about beliefs from purely another place. I'm talking about our doctrines. And so I I wanted to kind of help us to see our doctrines in the context of good news. So what's so great about oneness? I'm going to encourage you to do something as we do the sermon today. Take your bulletin. If you can find a place or something to write on on the bulletin, take it and uh, scribble down some notes of things that impress you as we talk about the good news of unity, things that just come into your head, of thoughts that come into your mind, of things that you hear others share as we discuss this together. So do that, and that will be particularly Helpful and help all of us to get the most maximum benefit. Okay, unity in our church doctrines. You might be surprised to know that unity is a big issue in the Seventh-day Adventist, 28 beliefs that we have. It appears repeatedly in a variety of them. Trinity is about God, three who are one. Is that unity? That's the core of what unity is all about, modeled in God. And I had a thought about that as I was driving over here today, how amazing that is. God is one, and yet he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A unity of three co-eternal persons who are completely unified. And they have taken submissive roles to each other, even though they don't need to. Husband and wife are one, right? And yet, even there, we take submissive roles, And so it's interesting how God is showing unity here in the second doctrine. It also appears in the seventh doctrine, which is about the nature of man, reminding us that God's purpose is for all of us to be restored in the image of our maker and to love him and one another. So our church believes that a church is supposed to be a family, supposed to be unified and also to be unified with our environment as well, take care of our environment. So unity appears in various different places. Also in the 23rd doctrine, which is about marriage and the family. And here you have unity between man and woman, two very diverse creatures. Anything as distant or far apart as a man and a woman? I hear a little bit from both sexes on that one. I think you both still realize how that is. And yet they are required to call to live as one. Comparing marriage to the union between, how does Jesus do that? Between Christ and his church. So just as he was one with the church, husbands and wives are supposed to be in that same kind of unity. So this thing about unity appears in several doctrines. An increasing family closeness is one of the earmarks of the final gospel message. It also appears in the 16th doctrine about the Lord's Supper. It reminds us of Christ's willingness to serve one another, and that's what we do. We actually get on our knees, those of us can, before one another, and that builds a sense of unity. So here is a church who has one, two, three, four, and even, get the little symbol there, five doctrines. Five of its doctrines talk about unity, the 14th doctrine. Unity in the body of Christ. The church is how many bodies? One. Can you think of any more diverse church than the Seventh-day Adventist Church? In every place around the world, people that are so different, have different ideas, different value systems, different cultures, all of that stuff are called to be what? One. Every tongue, a kindred, nation, and people. Race, culture, learning, nationalities and differences between high and the low, and the rich and the poor, and male and female. Those things have caused wars. And now God is calling His church to model what? Oneness. And so this oneness is very equal. We are all equal in Christ. We are one spirit is bonding us into one fellowship and with one another, and we are to serve and be served without partiality or reservation. And through the revelation of Jesus Christ in Scripture, we share the same faith, same faith. If you share the same faith, that will build unity, oneness, the same hope, and reach out in one to witness to all. I basically paraphrased the doctrine, the 14th doctrine here, and broke it down into parts. This unity has its source in the oneness of the triune God, always coming back to that, the oneness of the triune God. And I thought about how difficult things are sometimes. And I know in my own experience, um, uh, as I was driving over and it was a little bit foggy, I I thought about sometimes the things that God has called me to do and I thought about the way he has lived his life. And I mentioned this in our Sabbath school class. Sometimes I think, God, you're too tough on me. And I talked to him about that. This isn't quite right, Lord. You know, I talked to him about that. You know how he talks back to me? He shows me the way he is and what he has done. And I somehow can't talk anymore. It just puts it to stop. And so God is calling us to unity by modeling it himself. And that's the thing that I think that really changes us. So this is a great doctrine, the doctrine of unity. Okay, now here we're going to take a look at some things. The word one comes in atonement and oneness, and it appears 13 times throughout our 28 doctrines. Is that a lot? That's a pretty powerful theme. Unity itself, the word unity by itself, in such words as community as well as such words as community combinations appear eight times in our 28 doctrinal statements. Together they represent a powerful theme flowing through our core beliefs, reminding us that this is the core of who God is, who we are meant to be, the kind of relationships we are to have with God, the kind of relationships we are to have with one another, and oneness that is so great that it surpasses all obstacles like sin, which takes us away from unity gender which can take us away from unity and all the rest of these race nationality wealth culture age education biological cultivated tendencies all of these things that are meant to be roadblocks to unity are just wiped away by this oneness unity teaching of the lord and modeling of the lord okay now go back to our interactive time throughout the sermon i'm going to stop and i'm going to ask you questions why do we have a doctrine of unity? Why do we have that doctrine? And why does it appear in five major doctrines out of our 28? Yes? One, because I think it, it helps us understand the unity of the black Ah, uh-huh. yes. kind of focuses that way and teaches us by showing us the great model. Oh, he wants us to be one with him and to model it and to be, enjoy that same unity that he enjoys. Is that, that's a great one, isn't it? Yeah. So that's a good reason for it to be there. Any others that you come up with? All right, keep thinking. How important is this doctrine compared to the other doctrines that we have? The doctrine of unity. Appearing five times, modeling the unity in the Godhead. Is it as important, more important, less important than the other doctrines? More important, more important than Sabbath? Yeah. Ooh. More important than the state of the dead? Yeah. Yeah. Any... Even though you know how the gospel is tied to every one of our doctrines, we have to find the gospel in every doctrine to understand it correctly. I saw another hand over here somewhere. Yes? <coughs> Ah, strengthens us. It's that, that old example of one cord, you know, and then put two cords and three cords and it's much stronger rope, right? Okay, good. Okay, how is unity good news? How is this doctrine of unity good news? Because it's a solid rock. Now, you're going to have to show us a little bit more how that is gospel. How does it show us the gospel, the good news? The Say it a little louder. Becoming. becoming one? Okay. It, okay, I can see it in the sense that this is good news because God is offering us something that will take us to a very good place. Every human being is built with a desire for relationship. The, the, probably the, one of the most significant re, uh, findings of research in today's science today is showing that every cell of the human body is craving connection. Everyone. That's probably, and the mind too, is craving connection. Therefore, God has built us with this need for unity and the doctrine is taking us to where he's designing us to be. Right? To satisfy all of those cravings. You know, so we don't need anything else to substitute. Right? So if we find oneness, it's good news simply because it satisfies us in so many ways. Is that good news? How else is the doctrine of unity good news? A purpose. And it's kind of a real clear purpose, isn't it? And so in, in, you know, for many, many years, my purpose was to making sure that everybody knew that I knew all the answers. <laughs> and since then I grew up. And now I am more interested in listening to people and somehow connecting with people and to hearing what's in their heart. So it's a whole different focus, you know, And yes. When we have oneness, we also need. You can't have oneness if you don't know about each other. Uh huh. And so, in order to really, truly have oneness, we have to be really connected to each other. Do you think we can do any of the other things that the doctrines require without uh, unity? Can we do evangelism? No. That'll fall flat on its face if people can't see that in us, right? Unity in us, right? Can we, can we model any kind of love without unity? No. Right. Are we going to have a huge amount of conflicts in our lives without unity? Yeah. And it humbles us. So there's a lot of things. Okay, you're doing the right thing. Okay, the theme of this series has been on the good news. And here are the things that I've been talking about. Only as we see and understand them in the light of our doctrines that they are gospel, are good news, or they have any value to us. Part of that, I think, Paul's statements that they are just clanging symbols, the doctrines, just be clanging symbols if we don't see how they're good news and how the gospel is there. And otherwise, if we can't find that, our doctrines can even become worse and they can kind of one-upmanship, you know, I'm better than you. The gospel draws, inspires, and uplifts people. Yet rarely do I hear our doctrines presented in this way. It's even hard to see them that way because nobody has taught us to think of them this way. Unless presented as good news, they are of no benefit to us or others. And the doctrines should not put forth fear or self-consciousness or condemnation or, or even pride in our heart. Now, in this series, we've talked about, and this has been all year long, You're probably tired of it by now. Uh, What is the good news about the return of our Lord? We've talked about that. What is the good news about the remnant? What is the good news about the Godhead? What is the good news about Sabbath? You know, we talk about these things, but we talk about them in good news context. Hmm. What is the good news about the law? What is the good news about church and about death and unity? And between now and the end of the year, what is the good news of... Spiritual gifts and holy living and heaven, things like that. Okay, let me just give you some examples here. First name for God in the Bible, Elohim. Okay, it is a plural noun followed with a singular verb. A plural united with a verb, singular. Got it? There is a singular noun, Eloah. God used Elohim, which is plural. Plural God with a singular, singular verb. He acts as one. Got it? Genesis 1, 26, 3, 22, 11, 7. We, are, we find it there. Let us make man in whose image? Us are, making man, us and are, designed to be in his image, acting as one. You follow that? Every couple that goes to the marriage altar is praying for that to happen. They want it so much for that to happen. Every parent, when they hold a child, want that to happen between them and the child. God's plural have just created in creation people who are plural to be one. Adam, this is Eve. You are now one. Act as though you're one. You're two, plural, now act as one. God said, now you do what I am. You following me? They are the expression of what God is. The nation of Israel was defined by one singular verse in the entire Old Testament. And if you go to any Jew today, they know what the Shema is. You know what the Shema is? They repeat it every day, many times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's the core of their whole beliefs. And it comes from the word Shema meaning here. Uh, and here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now I have a question to ask. Well, we'll get to it in a minute here. Are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit different from one another? Yeah? They have different jobs. When Jesus became a man, did He become different from the Father? Is He a man forever? (laughs) No. When the Holy Spirit took on the role of being everywhere at the same time, losing form basically to do that, were they, was He just like He was before? No. No. No, He was not like the same. He was everywhere. And, and by the way, Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, they are all have equal God, but look what they did. They took different roles and those roles defined their personality. And the giftedness that they had was for those roles. And another one with the Holy Spirit. You see that? People don't really take in the significance of that. They think that they're still just they don't realize the distance. Let me just ask you this question. This is a trick question. It's not a trick question, but it's going to, you won't be able to answer it. Uh, if the sacrifice of Christ was not successful, would there be any way he could return back to the way it was before? And so what I'm saying is that this oneness that held them together caused them and their oneness they felt with us caused them to take steps, serious steps that changed their identities in some ways forever. What a, for a risk. People like to think, think, I, I'm going to go out on another area you might have difficulty with. They like to think that the sacrifice of Christ was a sure thing. There was no risk involved. That it was only play acting that it was all settled from way back in the beginning they knew what the answer was going to be they know way back just like John Calvin says as was mentioned in our Sabbath school class that God is so great that he knows what everybody is going to do therefore it's all just playing out a game we can't change it at all and some people you know think that when Jesus went to the cross that was what it was there's no risk there and is there any love there is there as much love there think about it so this unity is interesting now father son holy spirit they're different from one another we already talked about that how well did israel model god's oneness whoa every day several times a day hear O israel the lord our god is and they turned it into just the opposite said, you are you, and I am me, and you are not me at all. You keep away from me, you are unclean. Right? And the world said, oh, we hear that. We will keep away from you. And not only that, we will hate you, and eventually we're going to kill all of you. And as you look down through history from several weeks back when I showed you the story, how many Jews have lost their lives down through history? It is absolutely astounding. And the core of it is they missed this point about unity. Seventh day Adventists, by the way, will suffer the same fate if we don't get the good news about unity in our lives. It's something that we have to do. The model is God. Well, here is an apt picture that describes politics today. A considerable portion of the $6 billion that we need for a lot of good things in our world today our country how many people can you put to work six billion dollars spent on advertising hate would you call america a place of unity no. boy i couldn't want to, i wouldn't want to live in one of those swing states where you know where it's all around 24 hours a day you can't live without seeing this you know, we're taken back to days of, you probably don't remember because you're not old enough, when there were this uh, these gang of people in the Senate that was going out and trying to chase down people and find every cause they could to bring harm to them. House of Un-American Activities. Today, religion is becoming synonymous with what? Hate. You, I didn't expect to hear what you said. That is pretty profound. And I said, my response was, the church is going to lose its tax-exempt status because any time a church does that, they could lose their tax-exempt status. We have to be very careful as we, what a church, what we say. What about this sad story? Malala. You know what happened to Malala? It's finally changing this great continent. This, uh, of Pakistan, not continent, but Pakistan. The girl was shot in her head. You know, it's amazing. Finally, it took something like that A great price of a woman who was willing to take a great sacrifice for the sake of oneness and its awakening up a world. What would happen if this church here, if word got out that we were really people that loved one another and we loved our fellow men this kind of a way? There'd be a lot of people here. Our lives would be changed. And here was a congresswoman, as you well know, last year, Gabriel Giffords. 18 other people were shot in, 19, in 2011 at a public meeting held in a supermarket in a parking lot in Tucson. Six of those shot died. On the eve of the shooting, Giffords herself had written to a Republican, she's a Democrat, wrote to a Republican and says, we need to figure out how to tone our rhetoric and partisanship down. Here is a woman that was standing up for unity. Unity. And she was shot. Isn't that a sad state of affairs? That it's gone that far. And here is the sheriff down there, and I'm not going to read his statements, but he basically scolded the country and said, this is a wake-up call. We've got to do something to change this. I don't think it's changing yet. It's so sad. Do you believe America is destroying its unity? Absolutely. What about that? How many of you believe that's true? Not true. So are we still the shining light that says bring and bring and bring and we will take care of them? No. You take care of them in some ways. <laughs> um, how do we lose it? How are we losing this dream? We don't help each other as much as, you know, in the old days of house burnt down and everybody was there to help build it back up. And yeah. So just as there was with God, when he wanted to have mankind represent him in oneness, it cost him dearly to do that. And, and I am telling my wife, and she's telling me, you know, that's exactly what the Lord is teaching us. And the things that we are to do, it's for the same model. What he did, we need to do. And not try to look at all the reasons why we shouldn't do it. God didn't embrace those things. He embraced the need for oneness. It's a core need in humanity, core need in our country. Well, let's go down. What will be the consequences of the death of unity? So would you say then that unity and oneness is good news? You're beginning to see in so many ways how it could be good news. Okay, take a look. I'm going to take you through a bunch of things now. Now we're going to shift gears entirely. We're going to look at the way God made us. We have the biology of intimacy. We are the product of two cells becoming one and then quickly splitting over and over and coming back together again. We spend the first nine months of our lives with someone else, inside of someone else. One of the longest times, not the longest, in all of the, uh, the kingdoms. In infancy, we are dependent upon others for an extremely long period of time, compared to other species. What is God saying to us? He has designed us for oneness, for intimacy, and he wants us to take time to do that. And so what we do is we put the baby in a little stroller and turn on... What TV program do they have for little babies? Uh, Even before Sesame Street, there are some, aren't they? Yeah. (laughs) Chemicals to assist in bonding mothers are released uh, to their children and they are released in birthing process that makes it all. God designed it this way. He made it. He actually enhanced it. Women don't even have a lot of control on this. These chemicals just flood them. And men are amazed at that. Adolescence is a time when children who are just previously found the other sex so loathsome suddenly get flooded with some chemicals and wow. Wow. Who determined that? Who set that in place? We are learning now that relationships actually form the foundation of learning. Without proper relationships, learning is hampered. It's a precursor. Loneliness has serious negative medical consequences. People that are lonely have a very difficult time with their health. It's, it's one of the most significant things that we have never looked at before and we're finally beginning to realize. And hospital care now is beginning to change a little bit. The Bible advocated a full year when you got married so that the husband and wife would not be interrupted and could really build this sense of bond. You know? But also, biology assists the during the first year of their marriage. You know how? Something in the hormones happens to make it almost impossible for them to see each other's faults. After that year is up, whoa. (laughs) But God helps us in this unity process. You see how that works? Some of you are laughing about that. I wonder why. God designed us for committed relationships. We are built with a personal radar on board. Brain circuits designed for intimate brain-to-brain link-ups. These are neural bridges that allow us to affect the brain and bodies of everyone around us. Even though we're detached... We're not connected. This brain connects with another human being. That's what it's designed to do. They're finally discovering that's what the brain is most apt at doing. It's always doing that. It happens below our awareness level. Amazingly fast, within milliseconds of meeting someone, our brain engages in an emotional interaction with their brain, determining if there are ways that we can attune ourselves with them. It's going on all the time. That's the way God designed it. Connections so powerful that they affect not only our social connections, but through them they form our identity, transforming who we are. The brain actually, in brain talk, talks, connects, and so forth, and we transform ourselves. We all experience that, but we didn't realize the brain is programmed to do that. It happens automatically. Hormones and neural networks of the brain get lined up together between us and others. Just being in proximity to one another is a form of creation because in relationships we change each other. Isn't it, can you say amen to that? Amen. Who designed all that? All right. We're designed for oneness. All other biological systems from our lymphatic to our spleen many mainly regulate their activity uh, in response to signals re- emerging from within the body. All of the other parts of the body. But the brain is different. Continually it attunes itself and becomes influenced by the internal state, state of someone else. Isn't that amazing? The brain does that. I get in connection with you, you get in connection with me, and immediately our brain is at work, talking to that other brain, getting all the signals. We show who we are by little inflections and little movements of the eyes, whatever it may be. And these are the clues that enable us to see inside and the responses. They're giveaways. And the brain, and also we get messages that maybe are just intuitive that happens. It's amazing how that is. Repeated experience with others, sculpt, shape, and size, the number of neurons, as well as the connections in our brain. Being chronologically, excuse me, chronically hurt and angered, or being emotionally uh, nourished by someone we spend daily time with with over the course of the years, refresh, refashions our brains. I hope you got that. I kind of stumbled over that before we know why we have already made up our minds whether we like that person or whether we will open or be closed towards them and when the brain does that once that's kind of a, an amazing thing happens, there are these cells in our body that, uh, w- that have a little gateway, a doorway that allow entrance into the cell to change the structure of that cell or to be to remain locked and they have wondered how come people get sick because is it because they've been exposed to some kind of a sickness a virus or you know, bacteria or something like that and then they, they wonder well that can't possibly be so because you can take two people and expo- expose them and one person won't and one person will get sick and it's that little gateway inside of the cell that says, open, be accessible, or closed, not accessible. There's no way it can open unless that little cell, that little opening of the cell is allowed. And when it, when it opens up, it actually changes the cell. and allows it to be refashioned. That's the way God designed this. Wow. It's just amazing how that is. And so we have this tremendous ability to be actually become different people. Born again. Anyway, if we have determined they are safe, they can be trusted, certain cells in our brains are programmed to take them in, to literally become one with them, before we have even discussed such things as theology and beliefs and ethics. And you know that's true. People look at you, and if they think that they can trust you and they admire you and they love you, they open up and allow themselves to be remade. That's it. And so that's how you do evangelism. Not through the news, not through the radio, not through TV. It's this amazing gift that God has given us right here. Relationships no longer can be considered as something detached. They transform our biology, forcing us to take greater care of how and whom we choose to live our lives with. Now, I'm going to go a little bit longer on this. Are you getting the point? Are you appreciating the point? Okay. Okay. Matthew Lieberman, a uh, founder of social Neuroscience, which is an amazing thing, how our social connections change our neurons. from UCLA, conducted that the brain, concluded that the brain's default activity, what it does automatically, without even needing to be prompt, uh, when anything else is going on, seems to be just mulling over relationships. Reviewing our social lives seem to be its favorite downtime activity. By contrast, the parts of our brain that make logical, abstract judgments right up here that we talk so much about, this frontal lobe up here, you know, where it's so important that we have all of these judgments take place, that has to be revved up each time in order to do its work. This other part is engaged all the time. So people are gonna make decisions about you and whether you're right or you're wrong about everything your beliefs and everything else, even before you talk. Twenty years ago, help me with that name, Giacomo Giacomo Rizzolati. Did I do that one right? That Discovered a super fast neuron. He called mirror neurons. They fire as we watch someone else do something and they actually map our brains identically. This hyperfast system of emotional communication deals just in raw feelings, allowing us to feel with someone else. What happens is we see something happening, and this is children are amazing about this, the little ones, you know, they watch something. They just watch it. They don't have to practice. They just watch it. And these neurons, mirror neurons in the brain, big ones are able to absorb what they see and they master it just like that. It's just amazing. We wouldn't be able to do what we are designed to do as mankind without the ability to have that. And so it's quite amazing. They're called mirror neurons. Now, these things are not obviously accurate. You Not everything you see is good to see, you know, But a slower path would be to go through the frontal lobe which double checks and criticizes and evaluates and all that kind of stuff and looks at intention and reason and all those kind of things. But that takes reflection and thought. That's what God does with me when I'm driving, you know. Just starts talking to the frontal lobe. But when I'm with people, this thing in the amygdala and the mirror neurons, those are the things that are happening. And we need those conversations to make those two things come together. But by the time the message gets there, the emotional decision has already been made. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has, by and large, concentrated on which? The frontal lobe or the far more powerful and uh, ex- part of the brain where these mirror neurons are at, where these emotional connections are at, you know, the amygdala area? Are you seeing what I'm saying? Yes. Which does the Seventh-day Adventist Church concentrate on? They concentrate on this part up here. The frontal lobe, the reasoning, the judgment. And they try to teach our children. And the children learn mostly from that other part of the brain. And if we don't get back there and get connected in that area, it's, the battle's lost before it ever has a chance to work. You hear what I'm saying? That is physiology. And Jesus understood that. I'll talk to you about that in a little bit. Through neuro micro measuring instruments, they put these little caps on, you know, that measure everything in the brain, researchers are now able to detect what's going on each partner in a conversation. Strangers observing others in conversations experience suddenly the same emotions that they're observing. To the degree they're able to accurately sense what either of the couple that they're observing is feeling. It's called empathy. Attuning one's body to what's going on inside of another body allowing ourselves to resonate together with them, to share their emotions, even when we don't want to. The brain feels it as though it is happening to itself. Did Jesus do that? Is that how Jesus mainly met and dealt with the people? Did he spend a lot of time working out theological things with them? They knew when they were in His presence that He knew them. They sensed it. And immediately they were open or they were closed. The Pharisees were closed. The people were open. And they trusted Him because they somehow got that amazing insight. Emotionally they got this. That He was trustworthy. There was something about Him. And it was so transformatory that they were... He was changing them before he said a word to them. And they were being changed at that time. That's not spooky. That is what life is about. That's the Holy Spirit working. As well as the way our bodies are designed. Jesus knew their thoughts. I have been amazed. That since I have backed away from the frontal lobe. And running my, my whole life on the frontal lobe basically. And starting to learn to do some of the things that I'm talking to you about you know, today in the sermon, I am amazed that I have that ability too. It has shocked me. Because when I, st- when I listen to people, I suddenly know what is behind everything that's going on. Every good counselor knows how to do that. It's not because of their wisdom. It's simply that they have said, let down the cautions, let down the reserves, allow the oneness to take place, allow yourself to feel, allow the emotions to happen, and suddenly you know where they're at. And you know it's true too. And so that's simply what Jesus did. And they knew, and he knew, how much life would be so much easier if we'd allow this to happen. In John chapter 2, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He knew. Neuroscientists suspect that the speed of social intuition is the product of a special group of cells called spindle cells, ones that enable what we call snap instantaneous judgments. The body of these cells are four times larger than other brain cells. Their size determines their velocity in communicating with other neurons. God has given us this quick, very fast shortcut to becoming one, which enables people to open up and be changed. Why aren't we using it? Could we use that in our families? Could we use that in our work experiences? Would there be a transformation in everything we do if we did do this? Okay. Humans have thousand times more spindle cells, the things that allow us to do this, than do our closest primate cousins. Well, they're not really cousins. Who have but a few hundred. No other mammalian brain seems to contain spindle cells. They were designed for mankind because mankind is created in the image of and God has this ability and he's given it to us. He's built it into us. Instantaneous, very fast apparently is a part of what makes us godlike in the orbital frontal center of the brain located right behind here just above the eyes serves as a junction box that links these high speed messages the amygdala the brain stem and the cortex by performing an instant social calculus it tells us how we feel about the person we are with how they feel about us, and what to do next based upon how they respond. And people, I've been giving some counseling to some couples recently, and believe me, there is a lot of war there. But as I, I'm amazed at how quickly God has turned things around. When you allow this to happen, and both couples allow this to happen, It changes everything. If we go at the problems of our marriage from this area up here, you may wait for eternity for an answer. Because this is blocking. It needs to hear from the emotions, and the emotions need to be changed. All right, Jesus can do that. Neurons located here are key to detect the emotions on the face, making it possible. For each to sense whether they like the other. And the greater the OFC activity, the stronger the feelings of love and warmth. You see how this fits theology? Why would God design us this way? Because he's this way? God is more emotional than you thought? Go back and look at the Bible and you'll find some interesting examples. Do we model this? I'm pretty emotional. <laughs> <laughs> do we model it in our homes? Uh, here we go. Do we model it at work or school? Do we model it in the church? What do we need to do to facilitate being like we are designed to be? We have to, I can. We have to say... This is truth. And we have to embrace it. And we have to recognize that God is this way and he's created us this way. And we have to seek it. When we leave ourselves open, then the cells respond and they can be changed. Rewritten. Is it possible to be this way? Yeah, it is. Does this play a role in evangelizing the world? Yes. Oh, yeah. Is it good news? It's great news. So unity is what? What? It's huge, isn't it? Uh, Within each of us are oscillators, neural clocks, that enable people to unconsciously synchronize movements, mannerisms, etc. Two people walk together and within minutes they're pacing just exactly alike. Their movements match, etc. As soon as they stop, they, they get out of sync. It's amazing how this works. Watch it sometimes. When two people approach the end of their conversation, I just mentioned that, didn't I? So anyway... The Bible is filled with stories about those who have lost a sense of oneness with God and how they found their way back. Job. How did Job find his way back? How did Job find his way back? I want to make this real clear. This is our closing right now. The reason that Job found his way back is God allowed him the ability to question. We We project Job in a little way, in a way different than really it happened. Job did make questions. He did have some issues. He did talk to God. He questioned a lot of things. He actually challenged God and made some accusations towards God. He didn't break off his relationship. He challenged. All right? He stayed in emotional connection. What were his friends? Were they in emotional connection with God? Nope. Cut the relationship. Done with that. Job stayed in it. Is it tough to stay in a tough relationship? especially when the other party is saying things to you or not responding to you the way you want, right? What is happening is God wants us, He wants to answer our prayers, and He wants us us to be changed, all right? Therefore, in answer to our prayers, He is going to be at one with us, but then He's going to move to a place of growth, and we have to move with Him, and that causes dissonance, and He wanted so very much for all the universe to see that Job was willing to take that journey with him. And Job did. Job finally learned, just shut up and listen. You know, get yourself realigned. Trust what God is doing. And he did. And all of his life turned out better. And so dissonance, if you handle it with faith, can bring about great changes. Okay. All right, let's, let's do a skip through all that. Those are some of the questions he raised. Look at all those things. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I, I'm looking at the clock to you. Don't, don't you think I've forgotten about it. What about Moses? Did Moses ask questions about God? You know, uh, he spoke face to face with God, right? They were very close. Did all of these things that I've been talking about happen between Moses and God? You better believe they did. Did they have arguments? Yeah. Did Moses and God get to places where they didn't see eye to eye? Yeah. And But they were emotionally connected. If they were just cognitively connected, I don't think it would have happened. But because they were emotionally collect, connected, God was able to bring Moses along and change him. Remember, we have to be changed to be saved you know and the connection allows the change to happen god will changes even me what about gideon god said i'm with you gideon said where i don't see any evidence <laughs> so it was a challenge for gideon too and he had to do this very thing we call it what faith right And so there's a hall of fame in the Bible called the faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11 of people who did this very thing, right? What about King David, who had a heart like unto God? Did he challenge God? Did they have some issues? Yeah. Why did God put these stories down so that we would read about them now? Because they're just like we are. And just what we need. And so all of these. Jeremiah, this is the worst of them all. Because God said to Jeremiah, I'm calling you to be a prophet. You're to speak to your people and they're going to hate every day of your life and they're going to make your life miserable and they're not going to listen to a word you say. So Jeremiah says, okay, I'm done with that. (laughs) Jeremiah didn't have a choice. He had to go that way. That was the lot that God had set out for him. Was it a greater cost to him than God had paid for Jeremiah's salvation? So he was inviting Jeremiah to understand about God. To experience God in this process. I'm sure God reminded him about that. And so suddenly Jeremiah, even though it was terribly painful, and he really gets angry with God. And the language that Jeremiah uses against God is legal court language. I'm hauling you into court, God. And he's saying to God, if... If there is any righteous man in, in, God is saying, if there's, see, search and see if there's any righteous man in, in Jerusalem. And God said, and Jeremiah was saying, well, let's extend that search into heaven. Because he was really upset with God. So did that disqualify him? Did that God kick him out because of saying that? Because Job had, Jeremiah had to ask those questions in order for God to teach him. And restore the oneness. Not like Job's friends who just turned it off and said rejection. So it's hard work. 31 times in the Old Testament, God is charged with bringing evil. Five times, He's charged with planning evil. 13 times with pronouncing evil. Four times with doing evil. And three times with repaying evil. Oh my. Well, that's where we're going to end. You get the point? So is unity good news? To get good news, does God have to do some pretty drastic things and bad things to us? Do we have to believe that he is taking us to some place good? Even though we don't understand that? Are we allowed to voice dissent? We're not allowed to break the relationship. Everybody on that? Once the relationship is broken, what happens? No longer are those cells going to pay any attention. No longer are they going to hear. No longer will the cells inside of us respond and be changed. The relationship is broken. And we totally, and people are walking up and down throughout your lives, throughout this town, throughout this world, not knowing how to have oneness anymore. It's all broken. But what will wake it up is somebody. Who is open. Who does understand oneness. And they might run into you. Or they might run into me. And suddenly all of that stuff closed down and shut up inside them can open up. And they can have new hope. Our God designed it that way. He models it that way. All of his leaders throughout the Bible live this way. Did the disciples eventually become this way? Yes indeed. May God help us be this way.